Well, good morning, everybody. I want to welcome those of you here with me in the War Church Sanctuary and those of you joining us online. Good morning to you. Uh, by a show of hands uh, here and whatever you can do online, kind of talk about this in the chat room there. How many of you grew up with a sibling? You have at least one brother or sister? Yeah, a lot of us. Uh, how many of you know something about sibling rivalry? Yeah, it's a real thing. Uh, my twin sister and I are very close. And I think with an opposite gender sibling, it's a little easier on a lot of fronts. We never shared clothes when we were kids. Um, we don't share clothes now. Uh, neither did we compete athletically or socially, but we did compete uh, academically. And my sister is very bright, and in high school, you know, her grade point average, 3.8. That's a very good grade point average, 3.8. And my grade point average, 3.81. No, I know it's, it's basically the same thing. We basically had the same grade point average, but it's not exactly the same now, is it? I mean, technically, right, mathematically, 3.81 is higher than 3.8. Uh, but this is not a competition. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Um, but if it were a competition, I won. Yeah, she's my twin sister, so we are, we are the same age, um, twins, but we're not exactly the same age. Even with twins, someone has to be older, and she is five minutes older than me, so technically, she's older. And I remind her of this on a fairly regular basis, uh, just as she reminded me when we were children, right? We tease each other and we love each other, but sometimes sibling rivalry can be serious, and sometimes it can lead to wounds that last a lifetime. And the Bible has stories of families like this. There's Cain and Abel. There's Joseph and his brothers. The story of the prodigal son is really a story of two sons torn apart by rivalry and jealousy and pride. And perhaps the most famous Worst example of sibling rivalry is the story of Jacob and Esau, twins. You may remember their story from Genesis chapter 25, and this story, when they're being born, the youngest twin is grabbing the ankle of the oldest twin and kind of sets it up to know that rivalry is going to mark their story. The parents didn't help at all. You may remember they played favorites. And dad's favorite was the oldest, Esau, who was kind of an outdoorsy man's man. And mom doted on Jacob, the younger, who liked to cook and stay indoors. And when Jacob, the younger twin, deceived his dad, tricked his dad into giving to him the birthright, the family blessing, instead of the older brother, uh, he had to flee town for his life. Twenty years later... Jacob returns home with his wives and children in tow, and Esau, his twin older brother, stands in the road to greet him with 400 armed men. But what flowed that day was not tears, was not blood, but tears. The two brothers reconciled on this beautiful day, 20 years estranged, and the brothers are brothers once more. But their families grew to be separate nations. The descendants of Esau became known as the Edomites, 
and the descendants of Jacob, of course, became the Israelites. And if we look at a map here, again, the, the land of Canaan, uh, west of the Jordan River, could not contain them both. And so Esau and his family moved south uh, uh, east to the area of the mountains of Sierra, later called Edom. And this brotherly rivalry would extend into the nations they created, and it would surface generations later when the Israelites were released from slavery in Egypt. Moses asked the king of Edom if they could pass through on their way to the promised land, and the king of Edom said no and set up a barricade. Again, then many years later, David, uh, king uh, throned in, in, Jeru in Jerusalem, uh, conquered the Edomites, and even through his son Solomon, Edom was subject to Israel. But what began as the bickering of two twin boys mushroomed to be two proud nations at war. Why do I bring this up? Because today we're looking at the Old Testament book of Obadiah, and we're going to see that Obadiah is yet another chapter in the story of this rivalry between Jacob and Esau. You may never have heard of Obadiah, and I confess that I have never, uh, in, in, in all my ministry, I've never given a sermon from Obadiah. I've never heard a sermon from Obadiah. I was wondering why I didn't assign to Terence Obadiah. It's the kind of book that gets assigned to the most junior member of the pastoral team. Anybody knows every, every Sunday, Terence stands up and says, it feels like Michigan today. And there's this uncomfortable laughter that kind of goes through, like, does he have any idea what's, what's coming? <laughs> it's kind of the way I felt about Obadiah. My expectations for Obadiah were pretty low. But I want to tell you personally, this prophet spoke to me this week. He's easy to miss. He's the most minor of all the minor prophets at 21 verses long, it's the shortest book in the entire Old Testament. We don't know much about Obadiah. His name means servant of Yahweh, servant of God. And of course, a lot of moms and dads wanted their sons to be servants of God. It was a common name in that era, a common name in the Bible. But we don't know that any of these other Obadiahs are one in the same with the prophet. We can't even be sure when Obadiah lived and wrote, except the book gives us a clue. It clearly refers to a time when Judah and Jerusalem were invaded and plundered. And so most scholars believe that what this is referring to is the year 586 BC, when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon ransacked Jerusalem and took many of its inhabitants out to Babylon in exile. But here's the deal, the Edomites, let's put that map up again, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, delighted in this. They took part in it. At the very least, the Edomites, uh, you know, rejoiced in what was happening to Judah, and they benefited from it. And imagine what the people of God are thinking over here in Judah. God, how could you allow this to happen? We're being invaded by enemies and one of our enemies is our own brother who mocks us in our plight. You ever felt like that? I think from time to time we all do. 
Life doesn't always turn out like we want it to, and we realize that what our parents said is true, life isn't always fair. And sometimes the good guys don't win, and sometimes the evil twin brother prospers. It's so frustrating, and Obadiah is not the first guy to call out this tension, but he speaks specifically of these two nations, of these two brothers' descendants, and he gets to the root of the real issue of the rivalry. The real problem is pride. Though Edom was great in her own eyes, God will make her small. This is what the prophecy says. And you don't have to read very far into the book of Obadiah before you get the impression that Edom was enormously proud. God speaks of the pride of your heart. Now, you heard it read this morning on the video uh, reading, but I want to go over it again, the, the, the reasons for Edom's pride. This is verses 1 through 9 in Obadiah. And the first one is these natural defenses. Uh, God says through Obadiah, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home in the, on the heights. The area of Edom was marked by these red sandstone cliffs, 5,000 feet high. Uh, 5,000 feet high, it was a very uh, uh, easily fortified area. Maybe you've heard of the city of Petra. I had a chance to visit this ancient city carved in the rock. It's now in the, the nation of Jordan, but this would have been the area of Edom. Uh, one of the Indiana Jones movies was filmed right here in, in front of the, the, the look in search of the Holy Grail. Now, this cool-looking uh, building here probably was built after the time of Obadiah, but this was the area of Edom with these strong fortress mountains. And it was said of the city here that because of the mountains, 12 men could defend the city against an entire army. So it's no wonder they said proudly, who can bring us down? And God said, I can. Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, proud Edomites. Second reason for their pride was their wealth was their wealth. They were located on a uh, trade route with Egypt in the south and Syria in the north and became very prosperous. Plus, they would charge tolls to the caravans that would pass through. But God says, but how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasure pillaged. A third reason for their pride was powerful allies. If they got in trouble, they could call their powerful friends, but God says, all your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. A fourth reason we see for their pride is their intellectual wisdom. Edom was known for its wisdom, not a spiritual wisdom, not a godly wisdom. In fact, scholars can find no trace of any deity that was worshipped or lifted up by the Edomites. This would be very rare for the ancient world. This might make Edom the very first fully secular society. Uh, but they were known for their smartness. Uh, everybody there had a 3.81 or above in Edom. Um, but God says this, in that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom? So natural defenses... Uh, intellectual prowess, powerful allies, a booming economy. No, no wonder they were so proud. But one thing we know about God is that God hates pride. The very first sin uh, was of the fallen angel who thought himself equal with God. 
and then the evil one tempts the very first man and woman away, eat this apple, eat this fruit so you can be like God. And to this day, the evil one loves to cultivate within individuals and within nations an attitude that says, I can do it myself. I don't need God. I don't want anyone running my life but me. I have what it takes. The Edomites trust in all these things. What do you trust in? What does our society trust in? What does our nation trust in? I want to point out something uncomfortable about the prophets, and this is true not just of Obadiah, but of all the prophetic writings in the Bible that, that seems a little off for those of us that grew up in the Western world. And the first one is this, that, that God judges not just individuals, but whole people groups and nations. Now, in America, we generally think more individualistically. We're, we're raised to think as individuals, where the ancient Near East and many other cultures today think more communally. This was a very disturbing to early missionaries that would go to other places and they would uh, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and invite people to respond. And the whole tribe would go off and talk about it together and the tribal chief would come back and say, we've decided to receive Christ. Or the tribal chief would decide on behalf of the tribe, we've decided. And the missionaries, were, can, can they do that? Because as Americans, we talk about a personal decision for a personal relationship with a personal Jesus. Americans, we put the word personal in front of everything where they thought more communal. So no surprise to them that God would speak not just to individuals, but God speaks to cities. God speaks to nations. And God would judge individuals and nations here in Obadiah for their pride. The second observation is that God works in human history. In the Bible, God's judgment also often came in the form of an invading army that God allowed to occupy them. And so these invading nations, of course, were usually not God-fearing and not good. And yet at one level, uh, all people and all nations, whether they follow God or not, whether they recognize God or not, all people, all nations are subject to the sovereign rule of God. God can use even a pagan king to effect God's will. Obadiah says to proud people and to proud nations, trust not in yourself. He said to the Edomites, the pride of your heart has deceived you. The things you trust in will fail you. Now, pride resides in the human heart, and we cannot see the human heart, but we can see the way that pride works out. We can see the manifestations of pride, and that's the next section of Obadiah. The charges against Edom are kind of the next section, and he goes through a list of accusations against Edom, and each one of these uh, is added that, that what makes these accusations even worse is that you did these against your brother Judah. The family thing makes this all the more worse, all, 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 much, much worse. And he goes through the charges, and the first one is this, violence. Yeah, uh, their violence, because of the violence against your brother Jacob. I think I've told you before about a time when my boys were little and they were fighting in the living room, 
and I had just gotten back from a parenting conference, and I was all armed with new tools, and I broke up the fight, and I said, hey, hey, boys, not in here. In our house, we don't fight. In our house, we don't do name-calling. And then I did what the parent seminar said. I, I took them over the window. Look out this window, boys. Look out this window. Out there, on that side of the window, people fight, and people will name-call, and people will put you down. But on this side of the window, we don't fight. On this side of the window, we love as brothers. And one of the boys looked at the other and said, you want to go outside and fight? And he said, okay. <laughs> Missed the whole point of the speech. Physical fighting is usually the result of pride, right? Someone got their ego bruised. And I think a lot of the violence in our world can be traced back to pride. Whether it's domestic violence, whether it's a fight in a bar, whether it's a nation deploying an army, Pride is often at the root. Pride is self-centered and strikes against anything that challenges it. A second accusation made of the Edomites uh, through the prophet Obadiah is indifference. Indifference. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You stood, you stood there and did nothing. And sometimes indifference can be a manifestation of pride. We see this in marriages when someone becomes indifferent, apathetic to the concerns of the other. It often goes back to a bruised ego. Indifference. But then it goes on. It's not just indifference. They're gloating. They, they say to the Edomites, you should not gloat over your brother in the days of his misfortune nor rejoice over the people of Judah in their day of destruction, nor boast uh, so much in the day of their trouble. Uh, they weren't just indifferent. They weren't just watching. They were enjoying this, seeing their brother uh, get in trouble. Uh, they were gloating over this. Do you ever gloat? It's a great word, gloat. It sounds like what it is, gloating. Have you ever had something happen to a family member and you want to serve them up a fresh dish of I told you so? But maybe you hold back, but inside, something about their misfortune actually makes you smile? This is especially true when misfortune falls on somebody that you are jealous of or that you are angry toward. James Boyce, writing about this passage, he says, gloating, here's his definition, gloating is an improper curiosity about their brother's tragedy. It's an improper curiosity about their brother's tragedy. And James Boyce says, I know Christians who are like that. They, they never help anyone, but they're not adverse to finding out all the wicked details of some other Christian's failings. They were gloating, but not only were they indifferent, and not only did they gloat, they actually kicked them when they were down. This is what it says. They actually benefited from the downfall. The day of the Lord is near for, uh, is there another one before this? Is there a verse before this one? I'll read it to you. you should not, it says you should not march through the gates nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives or hand over their survivors in their day of their trouble. They actually marched through the gates. They benefited from the downfall of Judah. And those are the charges. And God says, you, have, you should not have done this. And you should not have done this to your brother 
It's like God is saying, this is not the way brothers behave. You should be the first to defend each other. Now, could any of these charges against Edom be laid against you? Do you ever gloat? Obadiah would say the test of whether you have Edomite pride in your veins is how you treat your brother. How you treat your brother. And who is your brother? That could be your biological family for sure. We have a responsibility to our parents and our siblings and our grandparents. It could be our neighbor. Jesus taught us to love our neighbor as ourselves. But I want you to think today that your brother is also the people you are related to in Christ. Read your Bible and you will see the relationship between members of the body of Christ are considered sacred and are to be protected at all costs. In the book of Acts alone, there are 51 references to the fact that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, the last section of Obadiah has to do with the outlook for Edom. Uh, How does God deal with the proud? And this is where it says, the day of the Lord is near for who? All nations. This is not just about Edom anymore. The day of the Lord is coming for all nations. Uh, Yes, thank you, that amen. (laughs) Daily of all nations, as you have done... Uh, It will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Now, the nation of Edom Edom did eventually fall. About a hundred years after Obadiah wrote these words, uh, the nation fell, and eventually they had to leave their land entirely and take residence on the southern tip of Judah. But this isn't just uh, about Israel. Uh, God says what happens to the Edomites is an example of what God does to, to the proud, Edom is an example of how God deals with the proud. Uh, And the day of the Lord is coming for all nations. But there is hope, and this is the final section of of Obadiah, uh, this hope-filled section. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. And Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be a stubble and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in uh, Sephard will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. This is the final line of Obadiah. The kingdom will be the Lord's. God is saying, uh, Eventually, I'm going to bring you home. I'll bring you back. You will possess the land. You will occupy the land of your enemies. You will worship again in your temple. You will find deliverance on Mount Zion. And all of this happened. Seventy years after exile, they came home. They rebuilt their temple. But this isn't just about Israel anymore. Again, what God did with Israel is an example of what God will do on that final day, on that climactic day when the kingdom will be the Lord's. That's the final punctuation point of Obadiah. The kingdom, the whole earth, 
will be the Lord's. Now, all this was meant to be an encouragement to the people who are reading and hearing Obadiah. God wants people to know that even though the proud seem to prosper while you suffer, God is in control. God is in charge of both the affairs of nations and of individuals. That includes all the details of your life. God's in control. Might be hard to believe when things aren't going your way. Might be harder to believe when your enemies seem to prosper and get all the breaks. But Israel needed to believe this as they were being carried away in exile and their brother laughed at their demise. And we need to believe this as our nation fractures and as a child maybe grows distant from the Lord or as a job search goes on and on, Obadiah reminds us that God is still in charge. He rules over the affairs of our lives. And as promised, the day will come when the tables will be turned and the kingdom will belong to the Lord. The king is coming. His name is Jesus. And remember what he said? He who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. And if you're part of the humble group that's being kicked and laughed at as the Israelites were in this story, and, and you know this king, then this will be very comforting for you. But if you're part of the proud, if you're one of those who say, I trust in no one but myself, then you are in danger. Deliverance is found in him, the one who died on Mount Zion. Put your trust in him. The story of Jacob and Esau is played out one more time in the story of two kings. One was an earthly king. His name was Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the son of Herod the Great who slaughtered all those babies at Bethlehem at Christmas time to try to take out the Christ child. But his son Antipas was no better. This is the Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded. This is the Herod who divorced his wife to marry his half-brother's wife. Antipas uh, and his father, what you might not remember about them is the Herods were Edomites. Herods were from the nation of Edom and they had all of that pride that characterized uh, their, their land, right? Uh, Antipas was wealthy and powerful. If anyone stood in his way, that person's life was about as valuable as the life of those babies were to his father. His philosophy of life was, it's all about me. He was the epitome of pride. He exalted himself, that king, King Herod Antipas. The other king, of course, is Jesus. He was the true king of Israel. He was the rightful heir to David's throne but he didn't look like a king. When he stood before Antipas, he stood before him like a sheep going to slaughter. Antipas mocked him by dressing him in an elegant robe and then sent him back to Pilate. Jesus could have called forth legions of angels to wipe out Herod Antipas, but instead, within just a few hours, he died a felon's death. He humbled himself. Herod exalted himself and said, what's in it for me? And Jesus humbled himself and said, I will do my Father's will. I will lay down my life. In the end, Jesus was raised up to glory. 
You know what happened to Herod? Historians don't know. He's lost in history. He likely died at an unknown date while in exile in Gaul. Obadiah reminds us, one day, the kingdom, all kingdoms, will belong to the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for the words of the prophets, your word to us. Give us ears to hear. We confess today our pride, and oh God, we do a good job of hiding it, of spiritualizing it. Search our hearts, oh God. Teach us to let go of our pride. Teach us what it means to trust in you. Help us to love our brother. God, we thank you for Jesus who humbled himself so that you could raise him up to glory. All hail the power of Jesus' name. He is the true king who comes in power. And we pray this in his name, King Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.